Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hello there, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Pickle Parables. I am Michael Rogers, and I am once again incredibly grateful to be here to be giving you the second half of James chapter 2, which will be verses 14 to 26. This passage has been the source of much consternation for even some of the greatest theologians of church history. The first reformer, Martin Luther, considered James almost to be like a second-class citizen amongst the other epistles. And at face value, James flatly contradicts the Apostle Paul. In James 2.24, it says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But you compare that to Galatians 2.16, where Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone is one of the great maxims of the Reformation and is probably one of the most fiercely held beliefs in Protestantism, that salvation is fully and completely bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, and that believers fully and completely attain that salvation only through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet here, James seems to flatly contradict not only our most beloved doctrine, but also the rest of Scripture. Seeing all this, some then conclude that James and Paul actually did not get along in their time. They say that James and Paul were competing leaders in the fledgling churches. Others along the same vein do conclude that the Bible contradicts itself here. And thus, what we call the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture proves then to be false. However, I, along with the rest of us at Parable Ministries, do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is without error or contradiction. Any supposed contradiction lies not in the Bible, but in our understanding and interpretation of it. This does not cause us to look at the Bible with our eyes closed and sweep complicated issues like this under the rug and hope nobody notices, but it does encourage us to take a closer look and to press on through difficulties to understand what God is saying through his word, even if the Bible does not initially make sense to us. I do believe there is a perfectly valid interpretation of James that does not contradict the rest of scripture. And I believe that that interpretation is not forced onto James by my theology, but it's actually what James truly intends to convey. And so, as usual, I will read through and unpack the passage. But to give you a sense of where I'm going with this, I want to first read to you Matthew seven fifteen through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, 
but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. With that, let's get right into James. Starting in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So to recap James up to this point, his main concern so far has been that they be perfect and complete as he describes in chapter 1 verse 4. James' letter is an immensely practical letter and does not get bogged down with lofty treatises or complicated theology. But he does insist that we be doers of the word of God, not just hearers. One of James' goals is that his readers grow into maturity and live and act as those who have been shown mercy by God through the blood of Christ, as we saw last time. With that, he starts into chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This first verse, as well as the next three that form the paragraph, are absolutely essential to understanding the rest of the passage. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The question is put plainly. If someone makes the claim that he has faith in Christ, someone professes to believe in Jesus but does not have works, what good is it? The next verse, James will illustrate the kind of works he's been talking about, but here... James asks out loud, what good is it to say you believe in Jesus without corresponding action? Can that faith save him? You know, can that faith save him? That's his follow-up question. He asks a rhetorical question, what, what good is faith that is not backed up by works? And the expected answer is none. It's no good. So he follows that with, can that faith save him? To which the expected answer would also be no. 
Now, there are two things I want to point out here, that number one, James is making a distinction between two kinds of faith here. He wrote, can that faith save? James is identifying two faiths. The first is a faith that saves, which is followed by works, and there's a faith that does not save, which is not accompanied by works. The second point I want you to see here is that James is making this a salvation issue. Can that faith, that faith that has no works, save him? As I prepared this lesson, I was reminded of my freshman year of college when I took what was essentially our New Testament survey class. It wasn't called that, but it was a New Testament survey class. My professor for our final paper had us go through this exact passage in James and talk about the, re the relationship between faith and works here. So I submitted my paper, got a good grade and all that, and went home for the summer. And I, I believe it was a Tuesday or Wednesday after school ended that I got a phone call from this professor. In my paper, I had made the same points that I had just made about the two faiths and James making it a salvation issue. And my professor had a couple counterpoints. He said to me that the word that isn't in the original Greek, and that the word save doesn't always refer to eternal salvation, but can refer to a physical salvation, such as when someone is saved from a car accident or perhaps saved from starvation. Not having any knowledge of Greek at the time, I said I would consider his points and go on my way. Well, I've been on my way, well, I went on my way, been on my way, studied for handful more of more years and now I have some thoughts that I would like to share. <laughs> I'll have to get a little nerdy and technical for this part, but please do bear with me. Regarding the word that not being in the original Greek, my professor is correct in saying the Greek demonstrative for that is not there. However, what is there is the Greek article pronounced as hey. In English, we have the definite article the and the indefinite indefinite article a, the, just the letter a. While the Greek article is commonly called a definite article, there's hardly anything definite about it, and it has a much wider range of use than the English the does. I got a couple examples from my Greek textbook that will help illustrate some of those challenges. In John 3.22, the ESV translates the Greek as, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. What you don't see there in English is the Greek article, even though it is definitely there. In the Greek, it looks a little bit more like, After this, the Jesus and his the disciples went into the Judean countryside. Another example of the challenges of the Greek article come from a more familiar John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. There is no the there in the Greek. The article isn't there. It's a little more literally like in beginning was the Word. Not in the beginning, just in beginning was the Word. All that to say, the Greek article can function very differently than our English definite article, the. 
So when we circle back to James, we don't see the Greek, the proper Greek demonstrative pronoun for that. What we do see, however, is the Greek, the Greek article hey. What's also worth noting is that the first time faith is mentioned, there is no article. If someone says he has faith, there's no article there. Can that faith save him? There is an article. So what James is doing there, and I confirmed this with a handful of Greek commentaries and journals, is using the article to refer back to that first question and to the faith that someone says he has but has no works. Even though the word that isn't in the original Greek, the ESV still gets the translation right because James is referring to the faith without works he just mentioned in the previous sentence. Now, regarding whether or not James is making this a salvation issue, it is also true that the Greek word for save used here can sometimes refer to a salvation from physical harm. However, the Bible does not often use it to refer to physical salvation, and the context makes it more than abundantly clear when it does. Further, the context of James does make it abundantly clear that he uses save to refer to eternal salvation. He uses rather strong language when he says faith without works is dead in verses 17 and 26. If he wanted to use softer language, he could have, just as he used a Greek word for useless in verse 20. But instead, more often than not, he opts for dead he likens the faith without works to the same belief that demons have in verse 19. And so whatever point James is making in this passage, and we'll get to this once we get to the end as well, whatever point James is making in this passage, as we'll see, he has eternal salvation in mind. So let's recap the first verse here. Someone's making the claim to believe in Jesus but has no works. Can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? James gives us a helpful illustration in the next three verses. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James Keeps his illustration simple, as he does. Suppose a fellow Christian, not just anyone, but if a brother or sister has shabby clothes and does not have food for the day, and someone says, good luck, hope all is well with you, dress warmly, have a full belly, what good is that? Of course, they're still hungry. So also, in the same way, faith by itself, without works, is dead. And ultimately, he's getting at it is useless. Useless for what? Can that faith save him? It's useless even for salvation. In the same way that wishing somebody well is rather useless, so is just saying you believe in Jesus without any resulting activity. Once again, I will talk more about dead faith when we get to the end of the passage. In verse 18, James invokes a hypothetical counter-argument. It reads, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. And the counter-argument is this, that some people are have faith, they have lots of faith, and are gifted with faith, while other people are gifted more with works and actually 
leaving that out. In the end, we all just sort of balance each other out. You're good at the works. I'm good at professing faith. Together, we got it figured out. We're all got our separate gifts. To such a claim, James responds with this. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James says, Go on then, try to demonstrate your faith without your works. Put your faith on display. Let us see what sort of great faith that you have. Of course, such a task is impossible. The one who has faith apart from works has only words. Just like wishing the poor brother or sister well is useless, so is claiming a faith without any difference in behavior. One might go around saying, I believe in Jesus, I have faith, Jesus died and rose again, but he hasn't shown us anything except that maybe his theology and factual information are correct. James' response is to show his faith by his works. He would have said in verse 15, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Here's my coat and some food. The dead faith dismisses the poor brother with only a verbal blessing, whereas the living faith blesses with real action and real blessing. How often do we just pray, or even worse, just say we'll pray for a brother or sister in need when we are more than capable of bettering the situation, if only a little. However, the dead faith cannot be demonstrated except through mere words. I believe, I believe, I believe. Great. But James responds in verse 19 with this, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. For James, even their good theology is dead. When he says that they believe God is one, that's a reference to what is called the Shema in the Old Testament, which is found in Deuteronomy 6.4, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So here James says, you believe God is one, you believe in one of the most fundamental theological truths of our religion? Great! Even the demons believe that. And they at least tremble at it. It's hard to forget Matthew 8, 29, where the demons cried out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons know who God is. They know who Jesus is. So don't go around thinking that you're special or exempt from what James is saying here because you have good theology. Belief and knowledge without works, without it being backed up, is completely useless. Moving on to verses 19 and 20. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James minces no words here. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
foolish person literally in Greek is like an empty person. See, they got empty-headed insults in the Bible too. Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? James here emphasizes useless again, using the actual word for useless, not dead. Useless for what? Anything. It's useless for ministry. It's useless to do good for anybody. And remember, James suggested it's even useless for salvation in verse 14. So James continues his argument in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Again, this passage is probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible just to keep straight. At face value, it flat again, it flatly contradicts what we see in Paul's teaching on justification. Further, James' Abrahamic timeline is out of order. In Genesis, the part that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness was well before Abraham offered up Isaac. James has those stories flipped. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. At that time, Abraham is child and very old and unable to normally have children. His lineage will die with him. So Abraham says to God, Behold, look, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. God responded, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And Genesis 15.6 says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It is not until Genesis 22 where we get the story of Abraham and his son Isaac that James cites. If you don't know the story, God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. Um, as Abraham begins to do so, makes the preparations, fully believing that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead, as we find out in the New Testament. But just before Abraham sacrifices Isaac, the angel of the Lord stops him, saying, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. To unpack this section, I want to remind you all of something that we all know about languages, especially of the English language, and that's just that sometimes one word can have several very different meanings. Think of our English word point, for example. You can point in a direction, you have a sharp point like the end of a knife or a pencil, you have a point in a straight line in geometry, you have a point in reality, and if you're any good, you might even have points on a scoreboard. Get the point? One word can have multiple, vastly different meanings, and sometimes similar meanings as well. And it's the same in Greek. So when we compare James with James with Paul, I want you to keep that in mind, 
because when Paul says by works of the law, no man can be justified. And when James say a person is justified by works, we must realize that Paul and James are using the same words in different ways. Let me show you. When Paul uses the word works, at least in the context of Galatians, he is referring to works of the law, works of the Mosaic law. Paul is referring to circumcision, feasts and festivals, and the sacrifices required in the Old Testament. No one will be justified before God by those works. When James is talking about works, he's talking about good deeds in general. Remember the example of a lack of works in verse 16. James is talking about charity, kindness, and just doing good things. Now, when Paul is using the word justify, he's talking about mean, about being made right before God. He uses justify in a legal sense. Paul is saying no one is made guiltless before God because they're following the law. No one's sins are forgiven because of following the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. Bear in mind also for Paul, justification is the basis for salvation. I would also suggest that Paul also means that no one is saved by doing just general good deeds either. When Paul uses the word justification, he's talking about making peace with God. No one makes peace with God by just what he does. Our actions rather end up condemning us instead. So when James used the word justify, he uses it a little differently. And we get a couple clues in verses 22 and 23 for what he's after here. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So first I want to draw your attention to the word completed. This is the same, well, this is the verb form of the word perfect all the way back in James chapter 1 verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. There is a sense of wholeness and maturity that James is desiring for the life of the believer. In the same way, in chapter 2, James is getting at a sense of wholeness for faith. Faith without works is useless. It's just mere words. Professed faith by itself is not, not a mature faith. The scripture that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness that scripture was fulfilled in Abraham's obedience. Abraham did not just believe God or say he believed God, but his faith was brought to completion. It was brought to maturity with his obedience. His obedience did not earn justification, for he received that justification and righteousness when he first believed. But his faith was completed and made whole in his obedience. All that to say that when James uses the word justify, he does not mean it like Paul does to refer to justification or salvation. But James uses justify like we might use the word prove. You see that a person is justified or proven or vindicated by works and not by faith alone. One commentator I read opts for the phrase made manifest, or elsewhere he uses the word demonstrated, 
and else and he also notes how Abraham's faith was shown through his obedience. Another commentator I read translated the whole passage and instead of justify he went with proved righteous. So to return to James' argument, he wrote in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James then appeals the story of Abraham, appeals to the story of Abraham, noting how Abraham was proven to be righteousness, to be righteous through his obedience to God, not just through his professed faith. Now, in verse 25, James writes, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If you are unfamiliar with the story, the people of Israel, on their way out of Egypt, sent spies into the city of Jericho. Um, their presence was made known to the city officials, and they were being looked for. But Rahab hid the spies and helped them ultimately to escape from the city. To repay her, the nation of Israel spared her and her family when they conquered Jericho. And you can check out the story for yourself in Joshua chapters 2 and 6 whenever you get the chance. But for James, the purpose of the illustration is pretty clear. If Rahab had only merely professed allegiance to Israel and had not protected had not protected the spies, if she had only used her words to wish the people of Israel well, then she would have been destroyed along with the rest of Jericho. Her faith in God, her faith in the God of Israel was proven by the assistance she gave to Israel in their conquest. We have but one more verse to cover. And this is a bit of a longer episode, so I want to thank you for sticking with me thus far. But recall all the way back to the first verse of our passage. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? When we covered that verse, I spent some time trying to prove that for James this is a salvation issue. But since then, I've spent this whole time arguing that James is not saying faith plus works brings salvation but that faith apart from works is only useless. I've been saying how works prove one's faith, how works bring faith into maturity, all the while trying to defend Paul's notions that we are saved by faith alone. What's up with that, Michael? Why are you saying one moment that it's a salvation issue while all the rest saying it's not? Now that brings us to verse 26. Which says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I see verses 14 and 26, the first and last verses of this passage, as two bookends that give shape to James' argument here. He poses the question, Can that faith save him? And James spends the rest of the time proving the point that faith without works is utterly useless. He then brings up 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If it weren't for this last verse, we could probably explain away James' question about salvation in verse 14. But here at the end, James says that faith without works is just as dead as a body is apart from the spirit. 
Now, in Jewish culture, the physical human body isn't divided into many parts like we do today. We make distinctions between the heart and the brain, the mind, the body, the emotions, and everything else. That wasn't the case in Jewish culture. The heart, mind, soul, it was all considered the same. There's some distinction between one's inner being and the body, but that's, that's about it. However, there's still a sense of the spirit. You can call it what you will. You can call it one's life, one's breath. But there's something in one's innermost being that gives a person life. Without it, a person isn't just useless. A person is quite literally dead. The body without the spirit is dead. The spirit causes a person to live, to be whole. And in the same way, faith is dead, lifeless, without works. Faith came first for Abraham, but there was a life to it that brought obedience and good deeds even. Such faith and profession of love for God would have been dead and lifeless without it. But that still doesn't quite bookend the salvation question, nor does it answer the question, what does this mean for us today? So I will turn to Ezekiel chapter 37 to help with that. And I will just read verses 1 to 7. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many bones on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Now will I sinews upon you, and, I, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. So let me go back to verse 5 again. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. That word breath there is also the same word for spirit, and they are rather interchangeable, especially here. But you see that. Here are these dead men, and God will give them breath, give them spirit, give them life, and they shall live, and they shall know that he is the Lord. So if you understand the gospel, if you understand salvation rightly, it is this, and this is what James is getting at. We are all dead men and women. We are all lifeless, useless even, we say one thing, do another, and we are disobedient to God, and the only life that we have is however long our bodies last. Our spirits are corrupt and dead, and we have a debt that we owe God, punishment that must be doled out on us for our sins and rebellion against his commandments. Now, Jesus Christ took that punishment on our behalf. He took our sin upon himself. He bore God's wrath meant for us in our place 
which is in of itself is a tremendous, wonderful thing. But beyond that, we are also given new life. We are given the righteousness of Christ. We are given breath. And the gospel of John is called being born again. Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old bones or old dead cells have passed away. And behold, the new has come. And believe me, that changes a person. One of my favorite preachers uses this analogy often. I, I really like it. If I showed up to an event two hours late and said to the host, Sorry, I'm late. I was crossing the highway and was run over by a logging truck on the way over. The host would know I was lying. One does not get run over by a logging truck on the highway and walk away unchanged. Or at all, for that matter. It's quite obvious when someone gets run over by a logging truck. And the analogy is this. Jesus Christ is so much bigger than a logging truck. In the same way, if someone says to have an encounter with Jesus Christ, and he claims to have faith in Christ, and yet somehow remains completely the same, you know that his faith is dead. That is what James is getting at. And for the record, that message is all over the writings of Paul as well. But that's what James is getting at. We as believers have been given new life, new breath, a new love for God where there was none before, a new spirit because we were dead. But if we are born again and made alive, then there should be something there. In the previous passage, we learned that we are to show Mercy, to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, to speak and act as those who have been changed by the gospel and forgiven by the blood of Christ. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And here, James merely generalizes the sentiment to go beyond partiality. Professed faith in Jesus Christ is useless to everybody involved, including oneself, if that faith is not demonstrated in a newness of life. So what does that mean for us? There are a number, number of cautions and applications I think we can take away here. So first, I do, do want to caution everybody. This passage does not give you permission to go around bashing people with it. The word of God is called a sword for a reason. Don't go around swinging it wildly without aim or purpose. Don't need to go swinging James 2.14 around every time that you merely perceive a lack of works in a fellow believer. Don't need to go around questioning people's salvation every time someone is not behaving the way you think they should. James chapter 3 has a lot more to say about teaching the word of God and on the power of your words, but I will leave that for next time. Second, I want to make clear again that salvation comes from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and not from our effort of any sort. It's a very easy thing in a conversation like this for things to be misinterpreted and then for emails to start flying. So again, I want to make clear, salvation is from faith alone and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
if I had to put it into an equation, I am not saying that faith plus works equals salvation. What I am saying, when what I believe James is saying, that faith in Jesus equals salvation and works. I believe that's the message of James chapter 2. When someone has faith and love for Jesus, that results in salvation and a changed life. Third, this passage does call for some self-examination. My professor that I mentioned at the, at the outset of this lesson believed that a one-time profession of faith was what was required for salvation. If someone recited a prayer, even, that asked Jesus into his heart, then his salvation was assured forever. If someone seerly said he believed in Christ one day, and even then still cursed Jesus the rest of his life, he was still saved because of that one-time profession. But that is not the message of James here. So such faith is dead and is useless for anything. Paul also wrote in Romans 6, Are we to continue that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he wrote later, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When someone comes to believe in Christ, there is a newfound love for him that did not exist before. So just look at your life. Do you consider yourself a Christian? If yes, do you consider yourself saved? Why? Ask yourself why. For what is the basis for your salvation? If the answer is because you say you believe in Jesus, that you prayed a prayer once or that you asked Jesus into your heart, then I would suggest to you that you put your faith in Jesus and not in anything that you said or did. Do you love Jesus? Or do you just say you believe in him and do some Christian things to convince yourself that you do in fact believe? So examine yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror of God's word. See if your faith is dead or if it's alive. There is... There's a lot more to be said and a lot more careful con conversations to be had about assurance of salvation, but I will have to save that for its own episode. Fourth, it would be a mistake to say, therefore, go do more good deeds and prove your faith. So I would only encourage you to strengthen yourself in the gospel. Grow in your love for Jesus. Spend great amounts of time with him in the word, in the Bible, and in prayer. Let your love for Jesus flourish. The source of a dead faith, I believe, is truly a heart that does not love Jesus. So if you are growing in your love for Christ, then those works that are supposed to follow, they will take care of themselves. Study the gospel and see what marvelous things that Jesus has done for you. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusky Bible. 
To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.